Chapter Seventeen of the Last Trail. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. The Last Trail by Zane Gray. Chapter Seventeen. Will and Helen hurried along the river road, beguiled by the soft beauty of the autumn morning. They ventured further from the fort than ever before and had been suddenly brought to a realization of the fact by a crackling in the underbrush. Instantly their minds reverted to bears and panthers, such as they had heard invested the thickets round the settlement. "'Oh, Will! I saw a dark form stealing along the woods from tree to tree!' exclaimed Helen in a startled whisper. "'So did I. It was an Indian, or I never saw one. Walk faster. Once we round the bend in the road, we'll be within sight of the fort. Then we'll run.' replied Will. He had turned pale, but maintained his composure. They increased their speed, and almost had come up to the curve in the road marked by dense undergrowth on both sides, when the branches in the thicket swayed violently. A sturdy little man, armed with a musket, appeared from among them. "'Avast, Eve Ho!' he commanded in a low, fierce voice, leveling his weapon. "'One breeze from ye, and I'll let sail this broadside.' "'What do you want? We have no valuables,' said Will, speaking low. Helen stared at the little man. She was speechless with terror. It flashed into her mind as soon as she recognized the red, evil face of the sailor, that he was the accomplice upon whom Brandt had told Metzer he could rely. "'Shut up! It's not ye I want, no valuables.' "'But this wench,' growled Case. He pushed Will around with the muzzle of the musket which action caused the young man to turn a sickly white and shrink involuntarily with fear. The hammer of the musket was raised and might fall at the slightest jar. "'For God's sake, Will, do as he says,' cried Helen, who saw murder in Case's eyes. Capture or anything was better than sacrifice of life. "'March!' ordered Case, with the musket against Will's back. Will hurriedly started forward jostling Helen, who had preceded him. He was forced to hurry because every few moments Case pressed the gun to his back or side. Without another word, the sailor marched them swiftly along the road, which now narrowed down to a trail. His intention, no doubt, was to put as much distance between him and the fort as was possible. No more than a mile had been thus traversed when two Indians stepped into view. "'My God! My God!' cried Will as the savages proceeded first to bind Helen's arms behind her, and then his in the same manner. After this the journey was continued in silence, the Indians walking beside the prisoners and Case in the rear. Helen was so terrified that for a long time she could not think coherently. It seemed as if she had walked miles, yet did not feel tired. Always in front wound the narrow leaf-girt trail, and to the left the broad river gleamed at intervals through open spaces. In the thickets flocks of birds rose in the line of march. They seemed tame, and uttered plaintive notes as if in sympathy. About noon the trail led to the river bank. One of the savages disappeared in a copse of willows, and presently reappeared carrying a birch-bark canoe. Case ordered Helen and Will into the boat got in himself and the savages, taking stations at bow and stern, paddled out into the stream. They shot over under the lee of an island, around a rocky point, and across a strait to another island, 
Beyond this they gained the Ohio shore and beached the canoe. Ahoy there, cap'n, cried Case, pushing Helen up the bank before him, and she gazing upward was more than amazed to see Mordaunt leaning against a tree. Mordaunt, had you anything to do with this? cried Helen breathlessly. I had all to do with it, answered the Englishman. What do you mean? He did not meet her gaze nor make reply, but turned to address a few words in a low tone to a white man sitting on a log. Helen knew she had seen this person before, and doubted not he was one of Metzer's men. She saw a rude bark lean-to, the remains of campfires, and a pack tied in blankets. Evidently, Mordaunt and his men had tarried here, awaiting such developments as had come to pass. "'You white-faced hound!' hissed Will, beside himself with rage when he realized the situation. Bound as he was, he leapt up and tried to get at Mordaunt. Case knocked him on the head with the handle of his knife. Will fell with blood streaming from a cut over the temple. The dastardly act aroused all Helen's fiery courage. She turned to the Englishman with eyes ablaze. So you've at last found your level, border outlaw. Kill me at once. I'd rather be dead than breathe the same air with such a coward. I swore I'd have you, if not by fair means, then by foul, he answered. With dark and haggard face. What do you intend to do with me now, then I'm tied? She demanded scornfully. Keep you a prisoner in the woods till you consent to marry me? Helen laughed in scorn. Desperate as was the plight, her natural courage had arisen at that cruel blow dealt her cousin, and she faced the Englishman with flashing eyes and undaunted mien. She saw he was again unsteady, and had the cough and catching breath habitual to certain men under the influence of liquor. She turned her attention to Will. He lay as he had fallen, with blood streaming over his pale face and fair hair. While she gazed at him, Case whipped out his long knife and looked up at Mordaunt. "'Captain, we'd better loosen a hatch for him,' he said brutally. "'He's dead cargo for us in, in the way.' He lowered the gleaming point upon Will's chest. "'Oh!' oh, oh, oh breathed Helen in horror. She tried to close her eyes, but was so fascinated she could not. "'Get up. I'll have no murder,' ordered Mordaunt. "'Leave him here.' "'He's not bad cut,' said the man sitting on a log. "'He'll come to after a spell. Go back to the fort and give an alarm.' "'What's that to me?' asked Mordaunt sharply. We shall be safe. I won't have him with us, because some Indian or another will kill him. It's not my purpose to murder anyone. Oh, uh, grunted one of the savages, and pointed eastward with his hand. Very long way go, he said in English. With the Indians in the lead, the party turned from the river to into the forest. Helen looked back into the sandy glade and saw Will lying as they had left him, unconscious, with his hands still bound tightly behind him, and blood running over his face. Painful as was the thought of leaving him thus, it afforded her relief. She assured herself he had not been badly hurt, would recover consciousness before long, and, even bound as he was, could make his way back to the settlement. Her own situation 
now that she knew Mordaunt had instigated the abduction, did not seem hopeless. Although dreading Brandt with unspeakable horror, she did not in the least fear the Englishman. He was mad to carry her off like this into the wilderness, but would force her to do nothing. He could not keep her prisoner long while Jonathan Zane and Wetzel were free to take his trail. What were his intentions? Where was he taking her? Such questions as these, however, troubled Helen more than a little. They brought her thoughts back to the Indians leading the way with lithe and stealthy step. How had Mordaunt associated himself with these savages? Then, suddenly it dawned upon her that Brant also might be in this scheme to carry her off. She scouted the idea, but it returned. Perhaps Mordaunt was only a tool. Perhaps he himself was being deceived. Helen turned pale at the very thought. She had never forgotten the strange, unreadable, yet threatening expression which Brandt had worn the day she had refused to walk with him. Meanwhile, the party made rapid progress through the forest. Not a word was spoken, nor did any noise of rustling leaves or crackling twigs follow their footsteps. The savage in the lead chose the open and less difficult ground. He took advantage of glades, mossy places, and rocky ridges. This careful choosing was, evidently, to avoid noise and make the trail as difficult to follow as possible. Once he stopped suddenly and listened. Helen had a good look at the savage while he was in this position. His lean, athletic figure resembled, in its half-clothed condition, a bronze statue. His powerful visage was set, changeless like iron. His dark eyes seemed to take in all points of the forest before him. Whatever had caused the halt was an enigma to all save his red-skinned companion. The silence of the wood was the silence of the desert. No bird chirped, no breath of wind sighed in the treetops. Even the aspens remained unagitated. Pale yellow leaves sailed slowly, reluctantly, down from above. But some faint sound, something unusual, had jarred upon the exquisitely sensitive ears of the leader for with a meaning shake of the head to his followers, he resumed the march in a direction at right angles with the original course. This caution and evident distrust of the forest ahead made Helen think again of Jonathan and Wetzel. Those great bordermen might already be on the trail of her captors. The thought thrilled her. Presently she realized, from another long, silent march through the forest thickets, glades, aisles, and groves, over rock-strewn ridges, and down mossy stoned ravines, that her strength was beginning to fail. "'I can go no further with my arms tied this way,' she declared, stopping suddenly. "'Ugh!' uttered the savage before her, turning sharply. He brandished a tomahawk before her eyes. Mordaunt hurriedly set free her wrists. His pale face flushed a dark, flaming red when she shrank from his touch as he were a viper. After they had traveled what seemed to Helen many miles, the vigilance of the leaders relaxed. On the banks of the willow-skirted stream the Indian guide halted them, and proceeded on alone to disappear in a green thicket. Presently he reappeared, and motioned for them to come on. He led the way over smooth, sandy paths between clumps of willows, into a heavy growth of alder bushes and prickly thorns, at length to emerge upon a beautiful grassy plot enclosed by green and yellow shrubbery. Above the stream, 
which cut the edge of the glade, rose a sloping wooded ridge, with huge rocks projecting here and there out of the brown forest. Several birch-bark huts could be seen, then two rough-bearded men lolling upon the grass, and beyond them a group of painted Indians, a whoop so shrill, so savage, so exultant, that it seemingly froze her blood, rent the silence. A man, unseen before, came crashing through the willows on the side of the ridge. He leapt the stream with the spring of a wild horse. He was big and broad, with disheveled hair, keen hard face, and wild gray eyes. Helen's sight almost failed her. Her head whirled dizzily. It was as if her heart had stopped beating and was become a cold, dead weight. She recognized in this man the one whom she feared most of all. Brant. He cast one glance full at her, the same threatening, cool, and evil-meaning look she remembered so well, and then engaged the Indian guide in low conversation. Helen sank at the foot of a tree, leaning against it. Despite her weariness, she had maintained some spirit, until this direful revelation broke her courage. What worse could have happened? Mordaunt had led her, for some reason that she could not divine, into the clutches of Brant, into the power of Leggett and his outlaws. But Helen was not one to remain long dispirited or hopeless. As this plot thickened, as every added misfortune weighed upon her, when just ready to give up to despair she remembered the bordermen. Then Colonel Zane's tales of their fearless, implacable pursuit when bent on rescue or revenge recurred to her and fortitude returned. While she had life, she would hope. The advent of the party with their prisoner enlivened Leggett's gang, a great giant of a man, blond-bearded and handsome, in a wild, rugged, uncouth way, a man Helen instinctively knew to be Leggett, slapped Brandt on the shoulder. "'Damn, Roach, if she ain't a regular little daisy. Never seed such a pretty lass in my life.' Brant spoke hurriedly, and Leggett laughed. All this time Case had been sitting on the grass, saying nothing but with his little eyes watchful. Mordaunt stood near him, his head bowed, his face gloomy. "'Say, Captain, I don't like this mess,' whispered Case to his master. They ain't no crew for us. I know men, for I've sailed the seas, and you're gonna get what Metz calls the double cross. Mordaunt seemed to arouse from his gloomy reverie. He looked at Brant and Leggett, who were now in earnest counsel. Then his eyes wandered toward Helen. She beckoned him to come to her. Why did you bring me here? she asked. Brant understood my case. He planned this thing, and seemed to be a good friend of mine. He said, if I once got you out of the settlement, he would give me protection until I crossed the border into Canada. There we could be married, replied Mordaunt unsteadily. Then you meant marriage by me, if I could be made to consent. Of course, I'm not utterly vile, he replied, with face lowered in shame. Have you any idea what you've done? Done? I don't understand. You have ruined yourself, lost your manhood, become an outlaw, a fugitive, made yourself the worst thing on the border, a girl thief, and all for nothing. No, I have you, 
You are more to me than all. But can't you see? You've brought me out here for Brant. My God! exclaimed Mordaunt. He rose slowly to his feet and gazed around like a man suddenly awakened from a dream. I see it all now, miserable, drunken wretch that I am. Helen saw his face change and lighten as if a cloud of darkness had passed away from it. She understood that love of liquor had made him a party to this plot. Brant had cunningly worked upon his weakness, proposed a daring scheme, and filled his befogged mind with hopes that, in a moment of clear-sightedness, he would have seen to be vain and impossible. And Helen understood also that the sudden shock of surprise, pain, possible fury, had sobered Mordaunt, possibly for the first time in weeks. The Englishman's face became exceedingly pale. Seating himself on a stone near Case, he bowed his head, remaining silent and motionless. The conference between Leggett and Brandt lasted for some time. When it ended, the latter strode toward the motionless figure on the rock. Mordaunt, you and Case will do well to follow this Indian at once to the river, where you can strike for Fort Pitt Trail, said Brandt. He spoke arrogantly and authoritatively. His keen, hard face, his steely eyes, bespoke the iron will and purpose of the man. Mordaunt rose with cold dignity. If he had been a dupe, he was one no longer, as could be plainly read in his calm, pale face. The old, listless unsteadiness had vanished. He wore a manner of extreme quietude, but his eyes were like balls of blazing blue steel. Mr. Brent, I seem to have done you a service, and I am no longer required, he said in a courteous tone. Brandt eyed this man, but judged him wrongly. An English gentleman was new to the border outlaw. "'I swore the girl should be mine,' he hissed. "'Doomed men cannot be choosers,' cried Helen, who had heard him. Her dark eyes burned with scorn and hatred. All the party heard her passionate outburst. Case arose as if unconcernedly, and stood by the side of his master. Leggett and the other two outlaws came up. The Indians turned their swarthy faces. "'Ah, ain't she sassy!' cried Leggett. Brant looked at Helen, understood the meaning of her words, and laughed, but his face paled, and involuntarily his shifty glance sought the rocks and trees upon the ridge. "'You played me from the first, asked Mudron quietly. "'I did,' replied Brant. You meant nothing of your promise to help me across the border? No. You intended for me to shift for myself out here in the wilderness? Yes, after this Indian guides you to the river trail, said Brandt, indicating with his finger the nearest savage. I get what you frontier men call a double-cross? That's it, replied Brandt, with a hard laugh, in which Leggett joined. A short pause ensued. What will you do with the girl? That's my affair. Marry her? Mordaunt's voice was low and quiet. No, cried Brandt. She flaunted my love in my face, scorned me. She saw that borderman strike me, and by God I'll get even. I'll keep her here in the woods until I'm tired of her. And when her beauty fades, I'll turn her over to Leggett. Scarcely had the words dropped from his vile lips. When Mordaunt moved with tigerish agility, he seized a knife from the belt of one of the Indians. "'Die!' he screamed. 
Brant grasped his tomahawk. At the same instant, the man who had acted as Mordaunt's guide grasped the Englishman from behind. Brant struck ineffectively at the struggling man. "'Fair play!' roared Case, leaping at Mordaunt's second assailant. His long knife sheathed its glittering length in the man's breast. Without even a groan, he dropped. "'Clear the decks!' Case yelled, sweeping round in a circle. All fell back before that whirling knife. Several of the Indians started as if to raise the rifles, but Leggett's stern command caused them to desist. The Englishman and the outlaw now engaged in a fearful encounter. The practiced, rugged, frontier desperado apparently had found his match in this pale-faced slender man. His border skill with the hatchet seemed offset by Mordaunt's terrible rage. Brant whirled and swung the weapon as he leaped around his antagonist. With his left arm, the Englishman sought only to protect his head while with his right he brandished the knife. Whirling here and there, they struggled across the cleared space, plunging out of sight among the willows. During a moment there was a sound as of breaking branches, then a dull blow, horrible to hear, followed by a low moan, and then deep silence. End of chapter 17